Queer Relation Tips, an I Am Clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. And the key, I think, for all of this is, is education, 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 because nobody teaches sex. Nobody teaches what sex is, how to have sex. No one even teaches anyone how to masturbate, which is why we have 50-year-olds masturbating the same way they did when they were 14. Right? And people who are 40 are having the same sex they had at 20 because that was so great. No, you loved it at 20. It probably wasn't great sex. Hello, and welcome to Queer Relation Tips, an I Am Clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Clay here again, and thanks for listening in again today. This is the second episode of a two-part series with our guest, Paul Nelson. Last episode, Isaac and I talked with Paul and explored some common misconceptions and dove a little deeper into what sex actually is and isn't. This week, we wade into the deep end and talk in more depth about the physiological, psychological, and medical aspects of sexual dysfunction. Don't worry, friends, this episode is not nearly as drab and scary as that sounds. There are actually some really fascinating parts about how sex can be used as a negative control and how to make sure we're not just fabricating a sense of safety in relationships. Also, we talk quite a bit about high-level academic topics like porn and masturbation. Exciting. All right, what do you all say? Let's do this. What y'all are, are talking about here reminds me of negative control, which mm. I think about is like the simple way of talking about it is like prodding. You know, it's almost like I have kind of this tempo poker in my hand and if I poke someone with it, I can kind of prod them. It's almost like I'm saying, hey, come pay attention to me. Very good. And we will use that negative control when we don't know that we're valuable. So instead of saying, hey, honey, I want to fill up your sexual account and I want you to fill mine so that we can get to this place where we have this huge investment to to give one another, what we do is we say, I don't know if I'm actually desired by you, so I'm going to poke at you to see if I can get you to come in and give me what I need. Brilliant. That's, that is per- that, I agree 100%. I'm sold. That's a great way of looking at that. So yes, that aggressive touch that men are always being complained about right the 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 nasty masculine sexuality is this aggressive poking handsy stop is men seeking i want to feel loved i want to feel needed i want to feel connected Mm -hmm. right i i haven't gone to the, the next level back yeah and i think that this is why again i think i i need a preface because i think a lot of people might hear me and say like isaac's anti grinder or anti hookup or anti-sex positive. (laughs) But one of the things that I do think we need to talk about is how apps like Scruff and Grindr are kind of a a nice and unfortunate petri dish of negative control. If I can post the right pictures, if I can say the right things, and if I'm willing to do the things I don't want to do, it's my way of poking people into affirming me, into, into giving me what I want. And so I need a better body. I need to take that dick pic in a way that it looks the biggest. I need to present myself in a way that I can, from over the phone, poke someone into coming over literally and validating my 
existence, my worth, my desirability. Because without this, I feel valueless. And again, we only use negative control when we feel valueless. That's not the only reason why people are on grinder or scruff, but it can be found very often. That's very true. That, that's, that's really good. And, and you're right. I mean, people often, um, I, I find, right, I, I talk about the hookup culture is problematic and everyone goes straight to the, it's my right, right? They go straight to a moral or like, it's like <laughs> that's, that's not where I'm coming from. Is that the, the, whole, the whole process tends to engender and foster exactly what you're talking about, sort of a negative attention, uh, I, I'm looking for validation, and the hookup culture, that's the problem with the hookup culture. Mm-hmm. And, and some people, that's where they get stuck sexually and they never discover what sex should be for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that just comes back to arrested development once again. And, uh, and the key, I, I think, for all of this is, is education, 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 because nobody teaches sex. Nobody teaches what sex is, how to have sex. No one even teaches anyone how to masturbate, which is why we have 50-year-olds masturbating the same way they did when they were 14. Right? And people who are 40 are having the same sex they had at 20 because oh, that was so great. No, you loved it at 20. It probably wasn't great sex because nothing you do at 20 is great. I hate to say it. You know, you're still an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. They're wonderful. I love 20. They're, 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 you know, what I mean? when you're old, you look, oh my God, 20. What was I doing? I didn't know enough to come in or the rain. Right? <laughs> I'm thinking of myself at 20 and what my sex life looked like in college and I, let's not go there. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and that doesn't, and so we confuse loving it and excitement is it was so great. No, you loved it because it was new and we had these young bodies. It was just amazing what you could, it was so exciting. That doesn't mean it was good. Right. Just like, you know, I, I think the education piece paired with like the self-awareness, like if you want to take that a step further with like, as a 20 year old, did you really know who you were? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. Like, do you really know what you wanted? Or like, did you just kind of have a sense of like, no, this is what I should want. Or like, I feel like this is what I want. Like, this yeah. will do. Yeah. yeah, this is what I'm supposed to want. Yeah. This is what everyone tells me I want. Yeah, absolutely. 100% self-awareness and education. We don't even know what we want. We don't even know what we don't want. We don't know. And that's okay. You're 20. And it's, it's the mindfulness piece, though, I think is so important. Like, I'm, I'm the same way as Isaac, because, like, I, I don't want to put down, like, dating apps and hookup culture or anything. Um, but I think the one thing is just, like, just be mindful. Um, because I think a lot of people go into the hookup culture or dating sites, and they can so easily look at themselves as, like, a commodity that just gets passed around. Like you're making yourself into a product that gets more sold by doing certain things. And that so much to your self-esteem um, and yeah. turn affects your relationships and mm-hmm. how you view others. And um, that's just like a, a negative feedback loop that is just like really easy to get that up into. Um, yeah. So I think, like the, the education and self-awareness piece is the perfect anecdote to falling into that. Mm-hmm. There was one time we had someone on the website fill out the contact form saying, I need help. I have a grinder addiction. And 
after sitting with them for a while and talking about negative control and, and this being, a com, you know, commodifying their own sex, they began saying, I think this is less of a grinder addiction and more of an, a validation addiction. And I really thought that that was kind of profound of the client and to then discover if I'm using sex as a form of negative control because I don't know that I'm valuable, what does it look like to know that I'm valuable and to treat me and my sexuality that way? How do I share it and how do I not share it? How do I use it in the sense? And I think that is so liberating so liberating for a client or for just a human to say, I don't have to use my body anymore to feel value because I'm carrying the sense of inherent worth everywhere I go. Mm -hmm. That's my one, that's what I want people to know. If I ever push back against hookup culture, it's because I want people to know that. Yeah. You're the valuable one, not your dick. (laughs) (laughs) Not your body. Uh Like Clay said, you're you're right. I mean, your body becomes a commodity. Your penis becomes a commodity. And the stock went up or went down depending on the buyer, right? And the market. And if the market's full of, you know, perfect 20-somethings, my stock is way down. (laughs) And so, you know, as the night goes on, my stock goes up. Three in the morning, everyone wants me. <laughs> Especially after a couple of beers or whatever it might be. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, and then, so if I could now just interject, because just as I said that, I, I realized, having said that, there are many, millions of men, right? One third of all men have some sort of sexual dysfunction, a medical, physiological dysfunction. And so I, I just want to make sure in this conversation they're included because just and it, it doesn't you know we we treat every part of the body with with for whatever it's not working eyes teeth um you know braces a knee braces how many guys who are 25 are wearing those those stretchy things around their knees because they tore the whatever we medically support the body in every aspect of life and yet when it comes to sex there's this shame element of, oh, you're not supposed to X, Y, Z, right? And the fact is, no, you may be sports injury. Uh, 20% of men have chronic pelvic pain syndrome where their pelvic floor muscles are in spasm and sex hurts. They can't get erection. I mean, you deserve a working body. Everything's always on the menu. Ejaculations on the menu, erections are on the menu. Every sex should never be painful. Sex should be easy. So I wanted to tell people that along with this is a healthy dose of medical treatment that your body is just a body right and it all of it deserves equal medical treatment and it's so easy in the sex therapy world to sort of downplay the role of medicine because well let, let's teach you how to have sex without a boner well no that's great let's do that that's on the menu but let's also make sure boners are on the menu and i we do see patients who have such anxiety they are stuck and they're stuck in panic mode they're stuck in crisis trauma mode because they can't get erection and so we do, we, we do penile injections to get them an erection. And guess what? The death spiral stops. The negative feedback loop stops. Then we can teach them how to have sex. And then we can withdraw the injections and they no longer need them because they've learned how to have sex. Mm-hmm. So for people who are listening, it's like, that all sounds great. All this booga booga, you know, crystals and good feelings. But the fact is they may need that. And the fa- and 
I'll, I'll shut up in a minute, but 95% of doctors cannot help you with this. Your family practice doctor can. Your urologist cannot. Your urologist is a surgeon. He was taught to cut. He doesn't know anything about boners. Okay? Most urologists want you out of their office because they want to cut. So guys go to a urologist, and the urologist are like, oh, you're 25, you don't have boners. Here's some pills that's in your head. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. And we don't know why the guy isn't getting a boner. I mean, I, I, I have a guy who I'm interviewing on my podcast um, next week who at 19 had never had an erection, and the doctors insisted it was all in his head. Then he finally found one guy who said, oh, you've got a birth defect. He had no corporate cavernosa, the structures in the penis that give an erection. These doctors all missed it because he was 19. It's impossible. He was the youngest man in the world to get a penile implant at 19. So that's a complete failure. So the medical system is more than likely going to fail you if you're looking for medical help. That's my, don't go to one doctor. You you may have to go to 15 or 20 doctors to find the doctor who will help you. And recognize that most of the places you go for medical help for sex are going to fail you. That's the sad reality of the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Sexual medicine is a brand new field. It's only maybe 20 years old, 25 years old. Um, there are very few sexual medicine specialists. And don't go to those places, the testosterone, you know, live forever youth places. They're not going to help you. So I guess people who are listening, there are people that can help you, but you're not going to have a hard time. You're going to have a hard time finding them there. Sorry, I'll get just, that's sort of the other part of this. Is there a listeners who are like, I still can't get a boner? For sure. It's great to have all this esoteric conversation. <laughs> you know, I do agree in many ways that there is important information to be gained from all fields. Urologists may have their particular bend, a sex medicine therapist might have their bend. And one thing that we do at IM Clinic that is really, really helpful is helping the autonomic nervous system. In other words, helping the roller coaster to kind of clean up the tracks. So anxiety or resentment or using sex as a performance once again, or entering sex as though you're not going to perform maybe a previous trauma or a previous embarrassment might prohibit your roller coaster from taking the route it needs to get to orgasm town. And so something called EMDR, which is a way we can treat all sorts of things like post-traumatic stress disorder and other traumas, along with anxieties and embarrassments. And what it does, it allows us to kind of clean out the limbic system almost as though it was a sponge that needed to be squeezed so that your autonomic nervous system can function properly. Saying the same thing in a very simple way is EMDR will help your gonads function if they've been influenced by anxiety or embarrassments or traumas. So always keep that in mind as well. The thing that we see often to kind of add to what you're saying here is the person who has a generalized anxiety disorder or social phobia or whatever it might be and they're on Lexapro or Prozac, you know, an SSRI. (laughs) And so they're anxious going into sex because they don't, you know, they can't have an erection. So they're taking the anti-anxiety meds that will prohibit them from having an erection. And um, so sometimes it's, um, we kind of need someone who can kind of coach us to really listen to really be open-minded and educated enough to make an accurate diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. And I tell people, yes, an anxiety disorder is a medical problem. 
structure. It's mm-hmm. an imbalance of serotonin in your mm-hmm. brain. It's it's a physical medical problem. And yes, most SSRIs are going to kill the ability to ejaculate, and the, the stronger ones will kill the ability for uh, erections. And the strongest ones, like Prozac, you'll have no libido at all. Mm-hmm. And and so you have to find a doctor. First of all, most psychiatrists want tried and true because they're all in lawsuit avoidance, right? So there are new drugs like Trintelix or Vibrate are both fairly new drugs that are not SSRIs. Mm -hmm. And they can help with anxiety, depression. They're not the best in the world, but they have also very few sexual side effects for most people. Mm -hmm. And so again, you may go to five different psychiatrists and they're all going to want to give you Zoloft, which is what we use for men with premature ejaculation. We put them on a low level Zoloft and they can last 20 minutes suddenly instead of 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so if you need, we have to treat the anxiety medically, but let's recognize that there are probably medications that can work treating the anxiety with a therapist and prevent and still uh, prevent sexual dysfunctions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, again, to, to bring up that roller coaster again, anxiety is going to, it's a form of arousal. So it's going to block the body from orgasm because it's taking over the system. It's the same system and it's going towards anxiety town, not orgasm town. <laughs> when we use, and when we use that SSRI to block the body from anxiety, we're also inherently blocking the body from orgasm because it's the same system. And so I think Anti-anxiety meds are amazing and we need them. And sometimes what we need to do is do something called somatic experiencing where we can retrain the body out of anxiety, even without anti-anxiety meds, mm-hmm. um, so that we can actually treat and recover from the anxiety rather than medicate you through it. And right. I, I want people to know that anti-anxiety meds are not the only option for treating anxiety. No. No, and I tell people, I said, our goal is to not have you on drugs the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. I, we, we treat them as a tool for a finite period of time. It's like, I tell people, I said, six months to one year, we see you on these medications so that you're in therapy, yes. learning to totally. deal with the anxiety. And then we take you off the ang- If you have been on anti-anxiety medication for 10 years, either it, it, I mean, you might need it. You might be hardwired to have anxiety, but you might also not be getting the help you need. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more often the case that people aren't learning to handle channel anxiety. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Totally. Hey, 20 year olds, the three of us kind of pounced on our sex lives at 20 years old. And I just want to throw a little caveat out here. There is something beautiful about what you're doing and what you're discovering. And if you want to come on the show and talk about it, I'd love to have you. You can always sign up at www.imclinic.org, pull down the main menu, and look up Queer Relationships and fill out the form. We'd love to have you. Hey there. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I wanted to take another moment to introduce myself with a little bit more detail. My name is Clay, and I'm the newest clinical associate here at IM Clinic. I could not be more excited to take part in Queer Relationships here. Relationships and their dynamics are a particular interest of mine in both my academic and professional work. I have experience working with a very diverse group of clients, and there's not much you could share with me that would surprise me. I firmly believe that everyone is exceptionally unique. 
My greatest passion is empowering people to find their own path towards healing and self-love because nothing is more satisfying to me than helping my clients find healthy perceptions of themselves and their relationships. My ultimate objective is to allow my clients to know and accept themselves as competent, complete, and safe. To find out more about me, I am Clinic, or the entire spectacular I am Clinic team, visit us at IamClinic.org. That's IAMClinic.org. Thanks again for listening. Let's get back to the show. I had, um, I would say, quite just to, I'm always honest with my clients in the world, but I used to have a generalized anxiety disorder. And I went from talk therapy to a hypnotherapist to neurofeedback to EMDR, and I love EMDR, and it was helpful, but not completely, until nothing helped until I went to a somatic experiencing therapist and learned about the autonomic nervous system and what was happening in my body. And then she gave me the skills to retrain my central nervous system out mm. of anxiety. And that was life-changing. I did Lexapro for six months as a way of calming down the autonomic nervous yes. system. And then she helped me retrain it. I slowly got off of Lexapro, kept up my regimen of practicing titration. It changed my life. Yes. And I noticed that along the way, like you were saying earlier, that masturbation was a way for me literally to manage the anxiety because <laughs> it was one of the times that I could get out of fight, fight, or freeze and feel some sort of pleasure. So if I could override the anxiety and get myself into that pleasurable place, it was a massive relief. Mm -hmm. Of course, I can say this today. Back then, though, I had no idea that I was medicating my anxiety with masturbation. Yeah. And um, this is where I, I take real issue with the porn-induced erectile dysfunction, um, which I, 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 I will try not to get crazy right now. I'm really trying hard, but I sense a tent meeting revival coming on here, folks. Um, <laughs> this is such bullshit. In our culture, we love to blame porn. We love to blame masturbation. When the fact is, most men who are masturbating to porn instead of having sex or they can't get an erection with a partner it's an anxiety problem porn is not that powerful it just is not that powerful most men if they'd rather have sex with porn than their partner the problems in the relationship how they feel about their partner not with the porn but as our society we love to blame the evil porn and of course masturbation is suspect anyway right so the porn does not cause erectile dysfunction Anxiety causes erectile dysfunction. So if you are watching porn and constantly masturbating, that should be a huge red flag to everybody, but it's not that you have an anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's the anxiety. If we treat the anxiety, your desire to watch porn all day and constantly jack off, you will no longer be self-medicating, and then you're going to then you're going to be in a healthier place and things are going to work. It's it's. But we love this whole. I have patients every day, oh no, I stopped masturbating because I thought it was adding to my erectile dysfunction. All right? I didn't watch porn because I read it causes, and there's even a whole website, I won't even name it, because it's full of shit, it's bad science. Mm -hmm. Porn does not cause erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. There's a, a better site called uh, realyourbrainonporn.com. 
that's a scientific site with all doctors and, and hundreds of studies that talk about the fact that porn does not cause erectile dysfunction. There are other problems with porn that can be problematic, but in general, porn just isn't that powerful, really. I mean, we probably all know porn stars, right? They have no special powers. <laughs> they, they have amazing bodies. They have special body parts, but no special powers. <laughs> I mean, I guess that yeah, what you're saying about, like, maybe porn for people experiencing those issues is just, like, a safe place. Um, like they're oh, it's, it's, it's a drug. They're self-medicating. Yeah, absolutely. The, and again, the self, just like a, an alcoholic, the drinking is causing problems. That's not the problem, mm. right? With a drug addict, with a workaholic, with a food addict. I mean, just like that's the, the addiction is not the problem. It's a symptom. Mm-hmm. And so, but in our society, we love to hate sex. We love to hate porn. We love to hate masturbation. And, you know, we've been raised a society where everyone thinks my partner's sexuality belongs completely to me. Everything my partner does erotically should be about me. And so if they're, having ma- if they're masturbating instead of having sex with me, I'm insulted. I'm hurt. They don't love me because I'm seeking approval for that. <laughs> That's we're right back to where it started before. Right. I have a question, and this is um, I'm, this is hearsay, so I want to debunk something that I haven't actually researched myself, and I wonder if you have. But in this, in this lens of seeing porn almost as uh, the medication, uh, the addiction that's covering up something else, my theory, you know, like if you take um, here in Colorado cannabis, like if you smoke a joint, and then you do that for two weeks, you're probably going to need to smoke more than a joint in a month. Alcohol, if you take two shots every day to get tipsy, you might need to take three or four. Mm-hmm. The research that I've heard says that in the same way, our autonomic nervous system will recalibrate to the, so we're almost creating a tolerance with porn. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to look at more intense versions, and we're going to have to look at it longer. Um, do you, would you support that in the research that you've Absolutely. Absolutely. Be- because what we're looking to porn to do is to calm our anxiety. So yes, I need more porn to calm my anxiety. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the problem is not, oh, my partner's not arousing enough. The problem is I have all kinds of anxiety about real life sex with my partner. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I think this ties into, yeah, I wonder, again, back to that self-worth self-esteem piece because we're saying you know if i'm using sex as a way of affirming myself what happens if i have um 10 extra pounds or those love handles that i look at in the mirror and i hate and let's let's not get personal here okay i'm doing my best (laughs) the covid 15 okay so screw you (laughs) the covid 19 19. very good (laughs) Yeah. yeah right Yes. Yes. Thank you for pointing out that I was underestimating. Thank you, so much. <laughs> you were four pounds. Thank you for self-esteem here. <laughs> yes, um, but I do think porn is a really good way. I've worked with many men who feel they, who would classify their use of porn as an addiction, and they will say things like, "I use it because I need a break from reality," and often mm-hmm. the reality is their anxiety or their own insecurities or their own mm-hmm. self-esteem. And one thing that I like to do is when I'm, when I'm working with people in this area of sex is to say, tell me about not the fantasies themselves, because I want to respect your privacy, but tell me about the themes that are popping up in your fantasy. 
feeling protected, mm. feeling cherished, feeling held, feeling powerful, feeling significant. And when we can understand what themes are happening in their use of porn, during masturbation, in their fantasy world, then we can help stabilize that sense of self-esteem and help them feeling safe, again, that word, in their own bodies and in their own relationships. And that's where it's one way where we see sex really change. That is, that's, that's a fascinating, that's, your, that's a fact, you're that's talking about the themes of your fantasies, right? We don't need to get into them, but mm-hmm. yeah, what, what comes, that, that's, that's great. Mm-hmm. And then would you say that, that shows up in what porn they're watching? Because I'll often ask a, a, a patient or a client, tell me about what, what kind of porn is it? Is it, you know, what you want to do? Or is it like, sort of like, tie me up, beat me till I'm bloody, you know, because that's, I think mine is a clumsy way of trying to sort of get what you're getting without the finesse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think, um, for sure. Absolutely. That the type of porn that helps our bodies feel safe or mm-hmm. the type of porn that resonates with our bodies, it's doing so because it's satisfying an emotional craving. It's helping us fabricate that sense of significance or that sense of being cherished or being protected. And when we kind of get under, and it's all one kit and caboodle, right? Because if emotional intimacy drives me towards sexual intimacy, if sex is an expression of my emotional intimacy, I'm going to use it in the reverse. I'm going to use the sexual intimacy as a way of fabricating what I'm craving on the emotional level. And so it's either top down or bottom up. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where we get into some of that addiction or even with masturbation because we're, we're fabricating the emotional cravings through masturbation or porn. Um, of course, we can use porn to discover about our bodies. Um, right. Masturbation to figure out what we love and what we don't love. And so I don't want to knock the whole thing. But we can, we can yeah. be playing out the emotional cravings that we're, we're so desperate to have mm-hmm. porn and masturbation yeah. or, or flat out sex. Yeah. Right. I tell people we again, we, it's not that we're masturbating because no one taught us how to masturbate. So the way most men masturbate is they just pound their prick till it pukes. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just like, and that trains us. And, and so that is antithetical to how we want to be experiencing sex. Mm-hmm. And so, I tell people, I say, the problem is not that we're masturbating. The problem is how we're masturbating. And masturbation, well, let's talk about this another time, but it should be the practice of becoming embodied. Masturbation should be practicing getting in your body so that's a skill that you bring to your partner. So that enhances partnered sex instead of this dissociated, disconnected, you know, porn in your eyes, hand on your dick, pounding that we do to our bodies. There's no way that sex resembles that. So that is... In fact, getting in the way of how our body wants to experience arousal and sex and release and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. but that's that's just a little. If we could talk sometime about how to masturbate, I would love to do that. Yeah, you know, I think just to kind of continue on what you're saying here, the top-down version is to say in my relationship or in the person that I'm dating or even maybe that I'm hooking up with, I feel so incredibly seen and. As, as that sensation of feeling seen moves me into sex with that person, the touch is different because they see me. 
Mm-hmm. It's not just pounding this thing until it pukes. <laughs> yes. It's it's because they know me, they touch me differently. And that's the top-down version. But I think yes. oftentimes we use the bottom-up to say, do this to my body so that I can feel seen for even just this little moment until yes. it's over. And then I go back to my loneliness. Yeah. And again, and it's interesting. that is so echoed in so much porn, so much of the porn we see, which is total about if they, if they do this to my body, I'll feel valued. We don't ever see, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. You're right. And that, that belief about how to have sex is so reinforced with porn. I mean, forget the mechanics, but the experience is that if they do this to my body, I will feel seen. Yeah. Because again, because we're using the, we're using our emotional cravings and they're up to consciousness. I want to feel powerful. I want to feel desired. And then we find the porn that helps us live out that fantasy. Right. Which is that's that. Yeah. And, and it was a very wise man who talked to me about um, the fact that most hookups are, 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 are insecurity. I want to recreate a live porn scene with this person. Right. And so it's like, what do you look like? What are you into? You'll match. Okay, great. I'll do a porn scene with this person. But the minute they start becoming a real person in this hookup, uh, like after the orgasm or after the, the, the blow and go or the come and run, whatever it's called. The minute this person stops being a porn scene and becomes a real person, it's like, I don't know what to do with this. I'm out of here. And I thought that was a perfect way that most hookup sex and even unfortunately partnered sex, long-term partners are having this sort of mindless, let's recreate a porn scene. I'll get my rocks off there. And that was good sex. Mm-hmm. And and we, we almost panic if this person starts breaking down these this this vision I have of a live porn scene. I want this screen between me and this person I'm having sex with. And if they start to break the screen, the anxiety erupts because uh, I'm being seen. I'm out of here. Yeah. And, you know, I think that would be a bottom up version in my kind of language here. Yeah. Fabricate something. And what I think, because we're dealing with the autonomic nervous system that's in charge of safety or anxiety. We're using that apparatus in the body to fabricate with someone a sense of connection. And then when we realize we've just used someone to feel connected in our own body, we feel incredibly anxious because we just said, I fabricated a sense of safety with you when I'm really not safe. Yes. And we just betrayed ourselves. Yes. And so now that my body was just experienced orgasm with you, now I need to experience anxiety with you. Uh huh. Because I just trusted you to, I, I went someplace in my own emotional being using you, and I shouldn't have ever gone there because that's not safe. That keyword again. And then we're in anxiety. Yeah. We feel awkward. We feel gross. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. As you can see, I could talk about this all day. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Any thoughts, Clay? Anything that's coming up? Anything, questions or. Another thing that, uh, I mean, it's a different topic here, but uh, I love a way that Paul described, like, the levels of kind of relationships and what you share versus what you don't. Um, And, like, how you've talked about it in the sense of, like, you can make eyes of someone on the street, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to let them into your apartment. Um, right. But yeah, you right. Can gradually progress. 
I, we were all raised with the idea. I, I, so many of our, our like the men I work with, um, in our society, sex is secret, right? And especially if you're dealing with orientation coming out, your sexuality is a secret. And, 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 that, and secrets are harmful. Secrets are bad. Secrets kill. And what we don't recognize is that sex is private. It's not secret. I tell people, just like if you take a poop, mm. I hope you have poops. I hope you poop at least once a day, that they're great, but I don't need to be there. We can talk about your poops. Everybody poops, right? It's like, but that's private, right? And the same thing, we have all this shame about sex that becomes secret. And so instead of talking openly about sex comfortably, like, that, that's fine. This is all great. Everyone has sex. This is great. We have this layer of secrecy surrounding our sexuality, which when you've been dealing with orientation issues is hugely toxic. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's life crushing. It is life endangering. And I use the illustration. Yes, you can nod to someone on the street, but you may not invite them even to lunch. You can say hello to a coworker, but you're not invited to your house. You can invite people to your house, but not to your bedroom. Or people could walk through your bedroom, but you're not opening your underwear drawer where your sex toys are, right? It's like we have these different boundaries of privacy that we allow people in in different spheres of how much we feel safe and how we remove these boundaries. And we, we need to recognize that we should do the same thing with sex, right? I can shake hands with a person and not hug them. Or I may hug them, but not embrace them. Or I could embrace them, but not kiss them. I mean, there are all these boundary things that we, because we've never been practiced, we've never been taught good boundaries with sex. And, and because sex is so shrouded in secrecy and all this stuff, we either have no boundaries or we have such firm boundaries, they're impenetrable and we can't let anybody in. So it's, it, 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 it becomes so difficult how to navigate sex is private but not secret, you know, yeah. and, you know. And, like, to put it in the context of relationships is, like, allowing a relationship to kind of go through those different levels at, like, a, a healthy pace is a good thing. Yes. Or, not straight or, from hello to here's my, here's my sex toy drawer. Exactly. Because, like, I mean, Hollywood wants us to think, like... <laughs> Look, guys, you've fallen madly in love, and like next thing you know, you're married and uh, have to ever like, after. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but in reality, if you do that, you're kind of setting yourself up for a lot of kind of disappointment because you could end up fantasizing what you think this person is. Uh, yeah, you don't really know them. Uh, yeah, that can be so disruptive for not only the relationship down the road but for yourself because yeah. all of a sudden you're finding like oh uh, this person isn't quite the way I thought them okay maybe if I pivot a little bit this will work a little bit more and so yeah. you can easily get caught up as well in like trying to make things work in a way that's not healthy for you Right, that, that then leads directly to codependency, right? I'm going to adjust my behavior to accommodate you. Exactly. Or to accommodate you, I want you to be, right? Exactly. Or <laughs> I'm going to yeah. manipulate you by changing my, right? And, exactly. uh, but you're right. We may love the underwear drawer, but discover we couldn't live for a day in the house. And we just zoomed right through the house into the underwear drawer and didn't ever look at other aspects of this person that were like, I can't live like this. I can't do it. Austin Powers furniture, you know? <laughs> 
You know, or the personality I can't stand. I just right, right. It's the personality. Yeah, <laughs> sex is great for them. It's and I we hear that all the time. The sex was amazing, but they were batshit crazy. Yeah. And it's like, no, if they're batshit crazy and drive you nuts, you shouldn't be having sex with them. Yeah. End of story. Like or like you're throwing yourself for a loop, saying like, no, everything's fine. It's it's like right, right. Let's like, let's live in denial. Sitting on yeah. a table, like everything's fine. Yeah. And and you're right. And then back back full circle to finish our discussions. Like then the sex has just become an escape mechanism to deal with the shitty relationship or the unhealthy. So if we, as long as we're screwing, we're fine. Sorry. Let's have sex four times a day. Then we don't have to talk right. until we until we become resentful and we can't keep a boner. And then we, have to, <laughs> then we have a pill for that. <laughs> <laughs> I just to circle back a little bit something I had this little aha moment I've been playing around with this idea but I didn't have words for it until you were describing secret versus private and I think that to preface if emotionality leads to sexuality and if we're holding our sexuality as a secret particularly when we're closeted we're also going to hold our emotionality in secret and we're not going to be vulnerable with it. Mm. The same way we're, we're not going to be public and vulnerable with our sexuality. And so when we come out, because we come out as sexual beings, we might oftentimes leave our emotionality in the, in the closet so that it still stays a secret. And so sex might be a way for us, again, to use to fabricate that emotionality that we haven't yet embraced. Wow. And say that again. <laughs> Do that again. That bears repeating. That bears, that's really important. Yeah, I just, I think that if we come out as sexual beings and we're, we're finally comfortable talking about our sexuality, we might still leave our emotionality in the closet mm-hmm. because we might think that it should still be secretive. And then we're, because we're not being vulnerable to create emotional intimacy, we're going to need sex to fabricate the emotionality that's still closeted. Yes, and yes. We need grinder. we're using negative control, and we're poking so. each other. And so I, I just want to say that I think when we come, I always say this, I'm saying it a lot on the podcast, it's, up, um, it's a kind of up in my heart right now, but if we were to come out as emotional beings rather than sexual beings, I think sex would play a totally different role. If we were able to say, I feel more seen and protected and cherished and valuable and known by someone of the same gender. If we could come out in that way, then we would, we would have a totally different relationship with sex. But what we do is we say, my penis loves that penis. <laughs> or my vagina loves that vagina. And we leave that emotionality in the closet. And I think we, we just, because we have this idea of sexual orientation, not emotional orientation, we've kind of screwed sex up because of our nomenclature and the way that we prioritize it. We, we have a bottom-up way of talking about sex rather than a top-down. Yeah. Would you please write a very short book on that? I say a short book because everyone's attention span is like <laughs> minutes. If you can condense that into a six-minute book, like... <laughs> That, that'd be marvelous. <laughs> Maybe a little YouTube video. How about that? A little, because that is so 
crucial. That is so, that, that, that's it. That's like, that's, that's sort of the, the crux of uh, Western civilization and the problem with sexuality and the problem with orientation. How we you look all that stuff is we're not doing it for emotional. We're doing it from mm-hmm. bottom up. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm 100% on board with that. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Phew. How about them apples and oranges? Even though that may have felt like a bit of a heavier episode information-wise, hopefully the content density didn't overwhelm you. Hopefully some facets of this episode sparked some new thoughts or maybe helped you synthesize, normalize, or harmonize certain things you felt shame or judgment about. Having a more in-depth understanding of how and why we have sex can lead to not just being the smartest person in the room, but also greater self-confidence and less anxiety all around. And that can be used to positively fuel healthier relationships. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope to connect with you all again soon. Until next time. Queer Relation Tips is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic. 